somebody asked me before the service, how was your Christmas? And it's wonderful. I'm glad that it was wonderful. I suspect if we really answer this, it's it's, it's a question like, well, how are you? Oh, I'm fine. I'm good. I'm great. And yet, I suspect in the middle of the fine, I'm good, I'm great, there's probably something amiss. There's something missing. There's something missing about Christmas here at Brush Prairie. Have you seen it? You caught it yet? The tree. It's still there, but it, it's not quite what it was supposed to be. The lights aren't on. It's, it's there, and it's, 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 it's a Christmas tree still. And during the first service, I was looking at it, and I was like, oh, we forgot to turn the lights on. That's probably what happened. We forgot to turn the lights on. But Bob can do something with this. So that, it reminded me of just that it's Christmas. This is good, and yet also it's not what it's supposed to be. And I suspect in the midst of your family, the person asked me, he said, how was your Christmas? He said, did you, get, did, 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 did you get some presents? And I said, my kids are home. That was, that's my favorite thing. That was the first thing that I answered. That's my favorite thing about this Christmas year. Our kids are home. We had the house full. We had, it was overflowing. We had an air bed down in the family room. You know, somebody in every bedroom plus. And yet... The, the circle wasn't complete. Our oldest boy and his family weren't able to come up from San Antonio. They didn't join us. They're missing. They're not here. Yeah, there's FaceTime, and I'm sorry. That just doesn't cut it. It's not the same, right? It used to be back in the olden days when they, when they were little, it seemed a whole lot easier, right? You have a tree, big or small, fancy or not, doesn't matter. It's, it's decorated with whatever, and there are presents underneath there, and they're old enough to know that there are presents for them, and there's that hope and anticipation, and what's it going to be, and they're waiting for Christmas, and, and then they get to open them, and you're tearing it over, and they love whatever they've got, even if it's cheap junk from the local store, and they're having fun. It's a wonderful time, and well... Life's just a little more complicated than that as we grow up, isn't it? And in the midst of joy and happiness and that which is a blessing and wonderful, there's still something missing. It's like we're not quite there yet. We can't quite get hold of it yet. You know what it is? We are living between Christmas and Advent. Now, there was a really sharp about church lingo and, and the liturgical years and those kind of things. Uh, maybe you, you understand the difference between Christmas and Advent. Well, technically with Advent, we have first Advent and second Advent. Christmas refers to nativity, little town of Bethlehem, Jesus laid in a manger, angels sing to shepherds, they come to see, and it's wonderful. That's Christmas. The Lord has come, Emmanuel, God with us. Good news of great joy to all people everywhere. And then, that's also, Christmas is first advent. It's the first coming. The first coming suggests that there's another coming, and that's second advent. That's joy to the world. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. And, and it, the song goes on to describe how wonderful and right everything is. 
and we're not there yet. We're not there yet, are we? Everything isn't wonderful. There is something lacking. There is something missing. There, there is not yet peace. There is not the fullness of joy on earth that we long for. I really only know one U2 song, so I keep going back to it. But it haunts me. And I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I love that line. It's so true. It's so genuine. The song describes all kinds of searching in all kinds of ways. He sounds like Solomon at times. He sounds like a church person at times. And yet in any of it, he has, there's a longing, there's a hungering in the human heart for things as they're supposed to be. Even as we also want things our way, we still long for things as we know they're supposed to be. We're living between Christmas and Advent. We're living between nativity and his coming to reign. Now, in the book of Isaiah, you have that wonderful prophecy of, of, of the first coming. You have the wonderful prophecy of Christmas, of nativity. Isaiah 7 and 14, you could probably quote it. For unto a, no, for the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. A virgin shall be with child, shall bear a son, little town of Bethlehem. There it is. Now then, you, you, you go over just a couple of chapters to Isaiah 9, and Isaiah 9 is where you get the fullness of the, of the prophecy that extends beyond the coming of the child into his kingdom and glorious reign. For unto us a child is born, Isaiah 9, 6. Unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And of his kingdom there will be no end. It will extend over all the earth, and it will reign forever. That's the joy to the world that we long for. And we're not there yet. And so I was thinking about that, and I was thinking to myself... And those of you that are sharp may have picked up on this, that if Isaiah is 7 is nativity and Isaiah 9 is advent, and we're between nativity and advent, between Christmas and advent, that we must beware. In Isaiah chapter 8, oh, you are a sharp bunch this morning. So does Isaiah chapter 8 then, which in Isaiah chapter 8, Isaiah is speaking to then in the midst of an age of unbelief and rejecting the promise of God's care of his people, of God's love for his people, that they can trust themselves to God in the midst of the distresses that they face. That's Isaiah 7. And yet, yet God's people, or many of the society, many around who hear what Isaiah has to say, they reject it. No, we've got our own plans. We've got a way. We're going to work this out our way. And they do. And King Ahaz does that. And while waiting for the true reality that God's king is going to come anyway, whether Ahaz likes it or not, whether Ahaz thinks he needs that or not, God's king is going to come. He will reign. As Psalm 2 says, God says, I have put my king on my holy hill of Zion. Let the nations rage. God doesn't care. He's, God is going to do what God is going to do. That's why he's God and we're not. He, he gets to do that. But 
In the midst of that, Isaiah 8 then, Isaiah is describing this is how things are going to be. This is how that's going to play out. And he also has some instructions for the people of his generation in between the two. In between the promise and the reality. In between the promise and the fulfillment, this is how those who will trust God are going to have to live. And there's a parallel there for us. If we're between Christmas and Advent, if we're between nativity and his ruling and reigning, if we're between little town of Bethlehem and joy to the world, then there's something for us in Isaiah 8 as well. And it's, a, it's, it's one of those chapters that we kind of go by from one to the other. And so I wanted this morning in this Sunday after Christmas just to spend a little time time there. What is there there that we might take away for us? Now, I'm going to read from the NIV this morning, so I know our church Bibles. I didn't give you the page number in the church Bible, even although you can follow along in the church Bible, Isaiah 8, which is right after chapter 7, just before chapter 9. And, and, but if you have an NIV as well, then you'll follow right along. You'll notice that I'm reading from that version this morning, just because there's some, there's some wording in there, some phrasing that I just thought it made it clearer. So, but the general thrust of what Isaiah is saying is what I'm going to restate, and you can find that in whatever version that you're reading. So don't be disturbed if your version is reading slightly different than what I'm reading from this morning. Before we begin, let's just pause and pray and ask the Lord to give his light for his word. Father, we do thank you, Lord, to gather again to hear from your word. Lord, that you would instruct us. Father, that your word would be, as you say, a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our way. Father, show us how to walk. Show us how to walk while we wait for what we're looking for. Show us how to live as light to the people round about us while we long for your coming. Speak to us from your word, Lord, as those who, as your people who trust you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So in Isaiah chapter 8, we'll jump in. I'm going to read Isaiah uh, from verse 5 to 10, 8 verses 5 to 10 first, and then I'll just I'll comment a little bit. This is, this is a little bit of background, a little bit of what's going to happen immediately. What are the consequences of, of, the, of the king of Judah not trusting God, trusting his own plans instead? The Lord spoke to me again. Because this people has rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloh, that speaks of the pool of Siloam, it speaks of the, of the gracious and yet gentle waters of God's provision for his people there in Jerusalem. It's a gentle uh, flow of water coming from a kind of a, what's called a gushing spring. It, it comes and it stops and it comes and it stops. It's a very gentle but continuous and abundant water supply. Because they've rejected the gentle flowing waters of Shiloh, God's provision, and they rejoice over Rezin and the son of Remaliah, two, king, two, two leaders in the north. Therefore, the Lord is about to bring against them the turbulent and mighty waters of the river, the Euphrates River, the king of Assyria and all his pomp. It will overflow its channels. It will run over all its banks and sweep on even into Judah, swirling over it, passing through, reaching up to the neck. The outspread wings will cover the breadth of your land, Emmanuel. Remember, he has just promised the coming of the son, this Davidic king to come, who would be called Emmanuel. And this is his land. He's going to reign over it. And yet first, Assyria is going to run over it overrun it. 
Isaiah 7, you have Ahaz, the king, has a choice. Is he going to trust God when there's a threat against him, or is he going to make his own plan? He makes his own plans. He says, Isaiah, I don't need what you've got to say. I don't need your promises from God. I'm making my own plans. I'm going to pay off the king of Assyria to, to rescue me from my political enemies. Others who were going to invade him and cause him to join a conspiracy of theirs. In fact, in fact, it was, it was being said in the king's counselors that Isaiah was part of a conspiracy. He was actually going political here in his warning to the king. Isaiah, the prophet, was, was acting as an agent trying to force Ahaz to join in with the conspiracy of northern Israel and of Syria to align themselves against the Assyrian Empire. And, and so they said, Ahaz is just part of this political plot over here. Don't listen to him. Ahaz makes his own plans. He, he, he pays off the Assyrian Empire. They do come in and they sweep over Syria, Damascus. They sweep into the northern kingdom of Israel and they remove that king from the throne and he's done. And, and pretty soon the whole northern kingdom is going to be finished as well. But there's also going to come a time when this friend, this mighty friend, Assyria, that, that Judah has relied upon, that King Ahaz has relied upon, they're going to also sweep down into Judah. They're not satisfied with staying up in the north. They're going to move further down. And, the, and those same floodwaters of the Euphrates, they're going to overflow further, and they're going to sweep over Judah. And every major city of Judah is going to be, end up being taken except Jerusalem. Judah is going to be surrounded all the way up to its neck in Assyrian waters. That's what's being described here. That's the aftermath. There's a, there's a, a practical warning there. The might that you choose to trust in, the might, the power that you choose to trust in, it might choose you. And that's what the Assyrian Empire did. Yeah, yeah, we've got, we've got your back and we're going to take your front too, by the way. And that's what they end up doing. The, the, the whole society suffers from the leader, King Ahaz's lack of faith. And yet God remains promised to his, God remains faithful to his promise, Emmanuel. Isaiah now is calling the remnant, those within the society who do still believe in God. And they are a few, in, in contrast to the many. And uh, yet he, in the midst of the choices that the king is making, in the midst of what's going to happen as a result, he still has a word to say. What about those who in the midst of the society, who have gone their own way, who have made their choices, they put their eggs in the basket of Assyria instead of trusting God, what do the rest of us do? And perhaps you wonder at times, I'm a follower of Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. I believe in Jesus. And yet, I'm, I, I live in the midst of a society that more and more seems antagonistic to my faith. As long as I keep it quiet, keep it to myself, as long as I keep the wastebasket over the lamp, things are okay. But the wrong place, the wrong time, I speak up about my faith and I might get in trouble. It might affect my job. It might affect what people say about me. It might affect what opportunities that I have. It might affect who stays a friend with me on Facebook. What do I do in the midst of this time when I'm in the midst of a lot of people that do not share my faith in the Lord? Verse 11 picks up Isaiah's counsel. He says, The Lord spoke to me with his strong hand upon me. 
Now imagine this for a minute. Here's Isaiah. He's wondering. The king has not listened. The court has gone their own way, the royal court. What am I supposed to do now? And God puts his own hand on Isaiah's shoulder. That's the image here. He says, buddy, I got something really important you need to listen to. The the Lord spoke to me with his strong hand upon me, warning me not to follow the way of this people. He says, do not call conspiracy everything that these people call conspiracy. Can you imagine the headlines in Judah at the time? Can you imagine the alarmism? Can you imagine the crisis? Can you imagine the call to action? If we don't do this and this and this, why? The the whole kingdom's going to be destroyed. And there is panic among the leadership. They are looking for conspiracy everywhere, kind of like the media today. Do not call conspiracy everything that these people call conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy, unique, above all. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. And he will be a sanctuary. One of the things I noticed on the tree, without the lights... I focused instead on the ornaments and the names, Father, Refuge, Emmanuel, Healer, that which our God is to us and for us. He will be a sanctuary, but for both houses of Israel, he will also be a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. For the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. Many of them will stumble. They will fall and be broken. They will be snared and captured. What? I thought God was the God of Israel and all Israel. No matter what Israel did, God st- does, God still has to be God to them, and he still has to do all the good that he said he would do. He's also going to be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. What the Lord is reminding Isaiah is what he told them actually back in chapter 6. I'm going to send you this people, but they're not going to believe. And they're going to stop up their ears, and they're going to turn away, and they're going to go their own way. And he says, tell them anyway. There will be some who will believe, and there will be some who won't believe. You and I don't have charge over who believes and who doesn't believe. What we do have charge over is God has called us to be light. To do it, to be light, to turn the light on, to maintain our connection with the Father, our fellowship, our relationship with him, our abiding in Christ, so that the life of Christ is seen in us, that his light shines through us, and we don't hide it, we don't put a wastebasket over it. Our job is to be light, whether people believe or not to believe. But let me back up to verse 12 conspiracies, conspiracies, fear and dread and crisis. Do not be co-opted into the political camps and the media clickbait that is intended to get you hooked. There, are, there, there will be one issue, one crisis after another, and there will be alarming stories, and there will be the grouping of people, and this side thinks this is all a conspiracy, and they're spinning the truth, and they're telling lies instead, and the side over here says, these people over here are doing the same thing. You can't trust them. Don't watch them. Don't read them. Only read us. And what ends up happening within our society, what's happening today more than ever before, is people are getting their information about what's going on around them, from one side of those sources or another. And they're spun up more and more. And what happens out of that is they keep clicking. 
And they keep clicking. And they drive up click rates, which drive up ad rates, which is more income to the media, which is what it's all about. I'm convinced the partisanship in our culture today that has hardened and taken a bitter edge, I think it's being led, it's being encouraged at least by our media. They found it more profitable to divide up into camps and to feed whatever side is listening to them more of what they like. At the end of the day, the media is in the business of selling you news, whether you realize it or not, whether you think you're paying for it or not. Through your attention, we pay for it. That's where they make their money. Don't get caught up. Don't get co-opted into it. Sometimes there are conspiracies. I'm reading a book now. It's a fascinating book. Um, it's very interesting to me because of my connection into the environment. But it's a book about what happened when they had this change in president. It wasn't a coup. They, they're very clear to say that. No, this was not a coup, but we did remove the President Mugabe from Zimbabwe and we installed a new person as president in his place. But the, all the things that are going on behind the scenes when that's happening, because we have some connection to Zimbabwe, we, our, our, our daughter and her husband, our little grandson, live there. That, that, I'm really interested in what's happening there. And so I find this story. But is everything in, this, in the book true? As this tale is being told, is it true or not? I don't know. It's a great story. How much of it is embellished or not or spun from one side, I have no idea. And most of what we read is that way. So I say, I'm not saying don't get involved. I would say this, instead of aligning yourself to a particular side, stick with principles. You know, there's a, one of the um, um, adult Bible classes that, that Brad Williams leads in the, first, in, in, the, in, in the first hour. Brad Williams, Brian Warren have this class, and they're going to be starting a new, a new uh, focus here in the, in the first of the year uh, on biblical worldviews. Um, basically dealing with various current events, current issues, what's going on around us in our society, and what does God's Word say about that? How does our faith in Christ relate to that issue? So it'll be really, really uh, enlightening to poke into that a little bit. I encourage you to consider that. But what we need to do is, is stay focused on biblical principles and issues rather than this is what my side says. And just taking that, because of everything that you read and are told, there's very little that you can know for sure. I used to have a friend who used to ask me, so Bob, what do you know for sure? Well, I've had a pile of education. I should know something. <laughs> what I know for sure is what God has said. There's a lot else that I know from my experience, but my own experience is tainted, folks. My own perspective, what I understand things from my eyes, and I know this is true because sometimes I think, hard to, sometimes I see things differently than Julie. But we know that Julie, my lovely wife, is as pure as the wind driven snow. That Julie doesn't see anything incorrectly. And I don't know what to do with this when I see things differently than her. We always see things somewhat tainted by our own perspective. That's the reality of our brokenness. We are broken people in a broken world in desperate need of our Savior. And so our thinking, our perspective, our sight needs to always be redirected and corrected 
by what God has told us in his word. We've got to keep reminding ourselves of it. In the midst of time when so many other voices are shouting so many other things. There are times when people are conspiring. Sometimes human sin is a team sport. Sometimes it's just shared sinfulness. Don't be caught in the various temporal fears and alarmism. Don't fear what they fear. Don't dread what they dread. More than anything else, fear failure or fear neglect of God's mission. That's what matters most. Now, I do believe part of Part of our being light in the midst of society is the roles where we are set all over society. Whether those roles are teaching, whether they are in business, whether they are in the political realm. I thank God for Arlene Quiring, our county council chair, and we need to pray for her. She's at the, at the, at the head of, of uh, county leadership, the political leadership in this county. And that's a difficult place to be. That's a place where there's always somebody has you in their sights. You've always got a target on. And we need to pray for Eileen. Let's pause and do that. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you, Lord, for those like our own Eileen Quirine that have these roles in society. Lord, I, I think of the many other roles as well. Lord, I teaching and business, examples, uh, um, jobs of serving. Father, all, every place where you've sprinkled in society, would you, by your grace, help us to be light? And so also with Eileen, help her to be light, Lord, in the midst of her role in leading the county council, in, in being the, the political head within our county. Would you give her much wisdom and would you give her your grace? We pray it in Jesus' name. We need to be involved. We need to be lights in the midst of darkness in all kinds of ways, not just in church and going out from church. God will sprinkle us all over this place. You will be God's ambassador. You will be God's light, cleverly disguised as a bus driver. I don't know. However, wherever God sets you there, you will be his ambassador. You will be his light in the midst of the world. That's what he's called us to be. The one thing we should fear, we, I don't fear climate change. I expect the climate to change, but I'm not afraid of it. And I'm not afraid of the world being destroyed. The world will be destroyed, but it won't be because of my Jeep. I'm pretty sure of that. <laughs> not because I like my Jeep. I'm sure of that because God has said he is going to destroy this world. That He has said this world is not going to be flooded. It's going to be, it's being reserved for his judgment. Now, he still calls us to be stewards of our environment. Don't get me wrong. That God says he will destroy those who destroy the earth. God likes his earth. He made it. He's not happy with what we've done. But he's certainly not happy with what we've done with those of one another that he's created in his image as well. There are all kinds of issues in crisis, and there are things you've got to be involved in, and yet... Beware of the fear and the alarmism. Beware of the co-opted into conspiracy theories and so forth. Fear more than any of that. Failure or neglect in God's mission, that which he's given us to do. Only one issue is truly eternal. When everything else passes, only one issue is truly eternal, and that is human sin and God's Savior. People will either believe or not. They will be saved or not. They will fall upon him and be saved by him, or they will stumble over him and reject him. One or the other. He is a sanctuary 
or he is a stumbling stone. And don't stumble yourselves over those who stumble over Jesus. There will be people dear to you. There will be people you care about. And it will distress you and you will call out to God and say, God, why have you not answered? God, why not you have done them something? God, why, not? why have you not made them to believe? There will be some who will reject God's grace. No matter how hard you, you plead with them, argue, debate, and pray. There will be some who find him a sanctuary, there will be some who stumble over Jesus, and don't you stumble over those who stumble. God put his hand on Isaiah's shoulder, and he said, Isaiah, I know it breaks my heart too, but they refuse me. Jesus wept over Jerusalem when he said, I would have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. That's God's heart. Don't think of God as hard-hearted and not caring in the matter. No, his heart breaks more than yours over the people that your heart breaks over. And we think about Christmas, and we think about every, every family in this room is touched by somebody very dear to you, whom you ache over, and all the more around the holidays, of things that you don't share together that you would you wish you would, and you wish Christmas was more like it was supposed to be. You wish we were more into Advent. But the hope brothers and sisters, as Isaiah 9 is coming. We are in the midst of Isaiah 8, but Isaiah 9 is coming. And while we wait, while we wait, fear the Lord and fear nothing else. Fear the Lord and fear nothing else and let God's word lead you. That which you can know for sure. Let God's word lead you. Look at verse 16. Isaiah 8, verse 16. Bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples. <laughs> Isaiah was into discipleship. You get that, Josh? Isaiah is into discipleship as well. Wonderful. It, Jesus didn't just bring that up out of nowhere. Bind up the testimony, testimony seal the law among my, among my disciples, my followers. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will put my trust in him. Here I am, and the children the Lord has given me. We are for signs and symbols in Israel from the Lord Almighty who dwells on Mount Zion. When men tell you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? You know, interesting side note here, the, the singular difference between Christianity and any other version of spirituality around the world is that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. We do not consult the dead, we consult the living. Jesus said, he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and God is the God of the living, not of the dead. And we have a hope that goes beyond the grave, that is eternal in the heavens, and his name is Jesus Christ. Consult to the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, there is no light in them. How do I know what is true? Compare it back to what I know from God's word. I'm probably more, uh, how should I say this, I, I get more, I'm kind of a political junkie, I'll say it that way. I, 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 I like to know what's going on in politics, I like to know the ins and outs, I like to know what strategies, what angles, what's being working, who's, who's up to what, and, and I, I follow those stories. I, I, I do enjoy reading a bit of both sides, it gives me more insight into what's going on. And yet, and yet in the midst of that, how do I know what's true? 
I, I, I don't align myself with this one or that one. That is my champion. That's who I am behind. I am for this person. Folks, I vote, I vote principles. I vote values. I align myself to particular ideals, and I choose a candidate, and I've, I've not chosen a perfect one yet. Not yet. And when I tell people around, the holiday, or, or around election time, I say, you know, we really need a good king. Now, that really upsets people today. I think I mentioned that a couple weeks ago. What really needs a good king, but the problem is we can't find a good one until the good one comes. There is no good king. Jesus said, why do you call me good? Leading them along because he said, no man is good. Sorry, ladies. He meant all of us when he said that. I know you've been using that against your husband for a long time, but stop it. When Jesus says no man is good, he means no man or woman is good. He's talking about humanity here. Boy or girl, sorry. Only God alone has the king we need. There's the king we need. But the good news is that king is coming. But in the meantime, I'm going to have to choose between these rascals. And so I will do that, but I will do that based on principles, not on personality. It's not a, I'm not, I'm not, this, this person is not my person, but I vote hoping that what they've said they're going to do. And it's refreshing now and again when that happens, because it normally doesn't. But then again, I live in Washington State, so when I vote, I'm used to being disappointed anyway. <sighs> but let God's Word lead you in the midst of it, Okay. Let God's word lead you. Let God's word tell you what is true. Bind up the testimony. God has showed himself to us in the story. It's not just New Testament. It's not just Gospels now. It's not just following the life of Jesus now. God showed himself to the world long before Jesus ever showed up. Do you know that? God's character, who God truly is, is shown in his, in his story of how he is related to his, to his humanity. In his commands, we see God's character as well as human's failure. In the prophet's urging invitation, we hear God calling to us. God's written revelation is as true a revealing of who God is and what God is like through history as Jesus is truly who God is and what God is like in person. Think about that for a minute. You know who God is and what God is like through Jesus in person. And you also know who God is and what God is like through the whole flow of the biblical story from Genesis forward. When you're not sure what God says in the midst of this situation to the law and to the testimony, if they don't speak according to that, it's because they're not in the light. God has shown us, He's given us His words. God's truth followed by God's people. Isaiah says, here am I and the children whom God has given me. We are signs and symbols for the people around us. You are his light in the midst of darkness. You are God's light in the world. So we dare not hide it. They need us more than they realize. They need what you know. They need whom you believe in. They need whom you love. We we, we and they, we are broken people in a broken world in desperate need of our Savior. In this age of competing truths, we compare everything. Verse 20, we compare everything to what God has said about himself and about us. It keeps us humble. In this hopelessness, others need 
what you see. Others need what you see. We will let God's word lead us because others need what you see. Look at verse 21. Distressed and hungry. Here's that, haven't found what I'm looking for. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. The Lord says, Isaiah, this is what it's going to be like. This is what life is going to be like. This is what society is going to be like. In the meantime, between Christmas and Advent, distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land not satisfied. When they are famished, they will become enraged. And looking upward, they will curse their king and their God. They will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into outer darkness. And your chapter 8 ends there in the English versions. But interestingly, in the Hebrew version, chapter 8 goes on for one more verse. It's not a verse you haven't seen. It's the first verse of Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 1. The chapter division is just shifted by one verse in the Hebrew Bible as compared to the English versions. I don't know why. But it encourages us to keep reading a little bit. All right? Don't end in gloom and distress. If you just look around you, that's an easy place to land. But, the next verse says, But yet, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. My grandma, Grandma Carlson, Edith, she's been gone a long time. She was gone when I was a young teen. But grandma used to say, and I didn't realize at the time all she was saying by this, but grandma used to say, there is a better day coming. And I didn't have a full conversation with her to fully understand all that she really meant by saying that, but she said it a lot. And Grandma's hands were like this with her arthritis. Grandma suffered a lot in the last decade or more of her life. And yet her refrain was, there's a better day coming. Distressed and hungry. Distressed, darkness, fearful, gloom. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. There is a better day coming. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has come. And now we're in Isaiah 9, and we rush on to, unto us, a child is born. Nativity. Unto us a son is given. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes on him would not perish but have everlasting life. Unto us a son is given. That's Easter. Check your calendar. You start at Christmas. New calendars do this. Our new church calendar. You've seen that? It starts in December. It starts with Easter this year. Or rather Christmas. Sorry, Christmas this year. And then it goes forward and you flip a couple of months and you're at Easter. And then when it comes down again, it ends back there in December with Advent again. I'm not saying Jesus is coming next December. That's not what I said. Don't leave here knowing that. What I'm saying is the cycle in Isaiah 9, 6 is Christmas to Easter to his coming again. Christmas, the son is born, a child is born. Easter, the son is given on the cross of Calvary for your guilt and mine, your shame and sin and mine. And he rises from the dead and he is coming again. And that's what we anticipate when we sing joy to the world. The Lord is come. That's what we're waiting for, most of all. Humanity, Israel then, our population now, blaming our rulers and our governments for everything that's wrong when we also can look right inside of us. We're all in the same boat. 
They, are, they will become enraged. They will curse their king and their God. Why doesn't God do this or that if he's there and loves me? They will look to the earth and see only distress. There, there's, there's no answers here. We cannot solve this mess. And yet, the king is coming. There will be no more gloom. Those who walk in darkness will see a great light. And you and I have the opportunity to show him to them. That is our privilege. That is our blessing. That's the lampstand again, right? We are the ones that God has given to where he'll shine his light through to show, to show others around us his light in the midst of the darkness until the day breaks. That's our job. This is our time. This is our hour. How do we do that? Well, don't do it by denying the current brokenness. It's not really real. No, 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 Jesus is coming. Does that help in the midst of the pain? How about in the midst, let me go back to Grandma. In the midst of her suffering, in the midst of her gnarled fingers and all that she could not do, my Grandma's hope was, yeah. And Grandma wouldn't say it this way, but this sucks. Grandma wouldn't say it that way. But there's a better day coming. That was her hope. She had a future that was beyond the grave, that was eternal in the heavens. And her hope was in Jesus, her Savior. And he would be coming. In the midst of the current brokenness, in the midst of what you haven't yet found, in the midst of what you're still longing for, in the midst of the hurt, the despair, the loss In the midst of that, acknowledge that pain, and yet, this is why I long for my Savior. This is why I long for the Lord to return and make everything that's wrong right. I can't change this. I can't fix this. But he will redeem it. He is my hope. Others around you need to see your hope lived out in the real mess of life. I'm not saying God has sent your mess so that your light can shine in the midst of it, but in the midst of our brokenness. God will take that and he will use that to shine forth his light so that others can see it. Oh, that that would be true of us. Again, we prayed for Eileen earlier. Eileen, what makes you so special? Let's pray for the rest of this bunch, shall we? Can we pray for one another? Father, would you do that? Would you make us your light in the midst of darkness? Father, would you, would you use us in ways that we don't expect? Would you use us in ways, even this week, maybe in conversations, maybe in the innocent question, how was your Christmas? Well, it was good, but it wasn't perfect. But in the midst of that, Lord, that we could share something about our hope. Father, use even our hurts to bring your healing not only to our own hearts, but to the people around us. Use us as your light in the midst of darkness, in our families, among our friends, among those where you scatter us in work. Father, we simply long for the privilege that you would use us, you would use what we have, you would use who we know. Father, take these gifts that we would offer now in this offering. Take them, Father, and use them for the light of your gospel right here in our community and around the world where floods of despair have overrun their banks. Father, would you send your light and would you use us to do it? We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.